Tomorrow by. Good morning. I'm Judith Lay and this is Praise, the programme that connects faith and daily life. Manx Radio. Today's programme centres around two books. I discover a book that was written by accident and I ask, could a book written over 1,500 years ago possibly be life-changing for us today? And we'll finish with a challenge where I'm really counting on your help. But first, let's join a Classic FM Choir of the Year from Wallingford Parish Church in Oxfordshire with a great hymn of praise. Praise my soul. Praise my soul, the King of Heaven, sung for us there by Wallingford Parish Church Choir. Husband and wife Methodist ministers Reverend Steve and Reverend Rebecca Ingruel have care of the seven Methodist churches in the east of the island. I met Steve in the late spring of this year, just as he and Rebecca were about to start a three-month sabbatical. Steve is an experienced leader of pilgrimages to the Holy Land, In fact, he'll be taking another group from the island in just a couple of months' time. And he was planning to use his sabbatical to visit a number of sacred places and try to discover what it is that makes them holy. Asking questions like, Why do some ancient churches have an aura of holiness while others are simply a historic space? And, If God is at work across the whole world, 
why does it seem easier to feel God's presence in some places rather than others? So imagine my surprise when I received an invitation to the launch of a book written by Steve Ingrul, the result of Steve's sabbatical explorations. So I went along to the launch to catch up with Steve and find out what had inspired him to write, why thin places exist and why I wish they didn't have to. It took me completely by surprise, Judith. I never set out to write a book as a result of the sabbatical, but in the last two weeks I realised I had pages and pages of my thoughts and notes and random jottings and I thought if I come back to this after being back in, in day-to-day ministry, if I come back to what I've done, will I be able to make any sense of it? So I decided to spend the last two weeks really putting my thoughts into some sort of logical order that would make sense for me. And I then realised towards the end of that process that what I was coming out with was a 25,000 word document on my computer, which was starting to read like a book. So I very hesitantly sent it to a few people who I respect, former lecturers at college, for example, and just asked them to read it through and see if I was making sense and if it was worth other people reading as well. And to my surprise, they came back and said, yes, this is worth spreading wider in some way. So as a result of the sabbatical, I have got what I humbly call a thin book on thin places. It's only 100 pages, but it contains the thoughts and my experiences and the reading that I did over those three months. Let's just recap on the purpose of your sabbatical. You were going to explore what makes places holy. Is Mm. it what has happened there? Is it what we bring to that place? I realised very early on in talking to different people about the topic I was looking at, including yourself, that a lot of people have their own ideas or their own understanding of why somewhere is special to them or what makes a, a place a, a thin place where the boundary, if you like, between heaven and earth is almost blurred. Yes. I realised, therefore, that I needed to look at this with a particular methodology. And what I have done is I've used what we call the Methodist quadrilateral, which is where you take a subject and you use four different lenses as ways to look into and explore the topic. And those lenses are scripture, tradition, experience and reason. And so in the book, there's a chapter using each of those lenses to look at the question of what makes a place thin. So we start with scripture and we start with the Garden of Eden and the development of the concept of Bethel and Jacob's ladder where the angels ascend and descend from heaven and Jacob sets up this altar and Bethel becomes revered as a meeting place between humanity and God. And likewise with the Exodus, you have the presence of God is there in the tabernacle with the cloud hovering over the Ark of the Covenant, a very specific place where God is found in the tent of meeting. And then with the temple and the Holy of Holies as being where the presence of God dwells. But through all of this, there's also the concept that God is present at all places, at all times. How do we get our heads around this God who appears in special ways, at special times, in special places, but is also present and available and accessible for all, in all places. 
And scripture has a lot to tell us about that. And of course, Jesus identifies himself as the new Bethel in his conversation with Nathaniel in John's gospel. And he identifies himself with the temple in John's gospel. And he says to the Samaritan woman, the time will come where you will worship God in spirit and in truth, not on this mountain or in Jerusalem, indicating what will happen as the temple curtain is torn in two at his crucifixion and indeed what is fulfilled at Pentecost. And so I argue through my looking at scripture that thin places should no longer be needed because of what Christ did in his ministry and he brought to fulfilment that way of God working with his people. And certainly in Paul's letters, Paul is very clear that the temple of the Holy Spirit is now the believer, that it's not a physical location, it's the individual and the collective group of believers when they come to worship. That is now the location of, of where we find the Holy Spirit. But very early on, moving into tradition, very early on, we find that shrines and churches and cathedrals are built in specific places. Initially, with St. Helena going to places around the Holy Land and asking the believers, where did this happen? And commissioning the churches to be built. But then also with churches around sites of the early church leaders' martyrdoms. And people would go back to the places of the martyrdom to remember that holy person and to pray in a particular way and to gain a particular spiritual experience through doing so. And then fast forwarding through tradition, we have the Reformation and the backlash against the abuse of the holy sites that rose in the Middle Ages, to the point that today a lot of people view the idea of a pilgrimage place or a holy place almost as if it's something idolatrous, that we shouldn't need to go to these places. And particularly in my own very low Protestant tradition, there are a lot who hold that sort of view. And so are very cynical, if not outright wary, about the concept of journeying to a place. But I have to hold that intention with my experience that I take people to places and God moves in particular ways and in wonderful ways in those places. And so the third part is sharing some of the experiences of myself and with those who've travelled with me over the years and asking why have those experiences happened? Has it been what they've brought to the place with the expectation or indeed the baggage sometimes? Or is there something about that place itself that God is using? And that's both places in the Holy Land and places in the UK that I explore with the lens of experience. And then finally, try to pull something out of it all with reason. You know, God gave us our intellects to use. And I conclude that perhaps a helpful model might be to view place as sacrament, in that it's something that is physical, that speaks of God, and that enables us to encounter and engage with God in a powerful way. And in the same way as bread and wine at communion, they're physical bread and wine that you receive, but it's sacrament. It speaks of the body and blood of Christ and it opens us up to receive God's grace in a powerful way. Can our places be curated in a way that they mediate grace? And I believe the answer is yes. And indeed, I finish with a plea that we should look at our buildings. And when we have people coming into our premises, we need to ask, is this building helping somebody to encounter God? Or is it just somewhere out of the rain? or somewhere with historical interest. This conversation with you has been at the end of one of the most productive sabbaticals, and it wasn't really that long, was it? It was three months, three months, but built on lots of years of being asked, why do you take people on pilgrimage? And being asked specifically, surely you don't have to travel anywhere to meet God. And so my answer has always been, 
Of course you don't, but there is something about those places. And that really has been fermenting in my mind ever since I started taking pilgrimages of six, six years ago now, is I wanted to be able to give a better answer to that question. Why do you take people? What is special about those places? It was three months of concentrated work on sabbatical, but building on lots of thought process that had gone before. This is the place Where dreams are found Where vision comes Dave Bilborough and Holy Ground. And before that, I was talking to Reverend Steve Ingrall about his new book called Why Thin Places Exist and Why I Wish They Didn't Have To. You can buy it online as a paperback or download a Kindle version, but it's cheapest if you buy it from Church's Bookshop in Howard Street here in Douglas, where it costs just £5.99 and Church's Bookshop is open from 10am to 4pm every day except Sunday. Father Nicholas Stebbing was born in South Africa and retains strong links with that country. But he's part of the Community of the Resurrection, a monastic community rooted in the Anglican tradition and living by the ancient rule of St. Benedict, based on worship, ministry and hospitality. The community, which is based at Murfield in Yorkshire, welcomes visitors who come for a variety of reasons – some for refreshment, some for renewal, and maybe even to explore their own vocation in life. The community of the resurrection, like all monastic communities, is a valued and constant praying presence, always there for the support of others. Father Nicholas happened to visit the island just after the publication of a book that he's co-written with a Roman Catholic nun from the Stanbrook community. It's called Making Space for God, and it's all about the rule of St. Benedict, the rule by which Father Nicholas and his community live, and the rule which, although it's 1,500 years old, Father Nicholas believes could be the answer to many present-day problems, as he now explains. We live in a very fractured society. Well, very true in England with all the disaster over Brexit and what the Brexit conflict is showing up about. Society is divided, political parties divided. People are finding it more and more difficult to live together and to agree together for all kinds of complicated reasons. And maybe it is just that, that life has become too complicated. And as people try to sort this out, they make it even more complicated. 
And one of the things about Christian life is it is actually basically very simple. It doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> you know, people say, well, why can't you just live by the Sermon on the Mount? Well, the Sermon on the Mount just tells you nice, simple things like love your neighbor, don't hit him when he hits you. It's dead easy stuff, really, but it's really hard to do day after day after day. We live our monastic life according to the rule of St. Benedict. The rule of St. Benedict was written 1,500 years ago, and when you see a monastery, you see monks dressed in funny black robes, sometimes singing in Latin, sometimes singing in English. It all seems a bit way out. Um, but then you come to the rule, and you find it's an intensely practical rule which tells the monks how to live together day by day. And that becomes something which any person can use. Father, can you give me some examples if looking at the rule of St. Benedict? Yeah, sure. Right at the very beginning of the rule, Benedict says, whenever you're going to do something, something good, make sure you offer it to God. So that kind of sanctifies everything we're doing. And this might be giving an interview on Radio Max, or it might be teaching a class, or it might be going to work in the garden, or it might be washing up the dishes, or it might be going to church. Whatever it is, everything is important and needs to be offered to God. And I think that's a way of helping us to realize that every single thing about our life is sacred. So in a later part of the rule, there's a whole little chapter devoted to the tools of the monastery and how garden tools must be given out by the abbot and handed back to him so that he can make sure they haven't got lost and that they've been well looked after. The pots and the pans of the monastery need to be looked after. And that's, again, symbolic that everything in the community, whether it's books, pots and pans, or other people, they're all gifts from God that need to be looked after. You leave your tools out in the garden, they either get lost or they get rusted away, so you go and buy some more. So this is the whole consumer society, the whole um, throwaway society, and that is something we're going to have to change if we're going to save this beautiful planet of ours. And that means basic things like not constantly going out to buy new things just because you lost the last one, but looking after what you've got. This all sounds terribly old-fashioned. People who grew up during the Second World War will say, oh, well, you know, we had to look after things, we couldn't just go and buy a new one. But this is actually the way the society is going to have to operate in the future if we're going to save the planet. Now, that word spirituality has become a bit of a kind of buzzword. Actually, not in, even in the church. People talk about the spirituality of shopping, and the idea that spirituality, I think, is something that gives you a great warm feeling inside you or makes you feel important. Or spirituality is something tremendously intellectual and raises you up to a higher plane where you can escape from this nasty world. In our life, spirituality is quite simply living. Living Christian life in the world today. And anything we do that is involved with living Christian life in the world today is spirituality. So that in the rule of St. Benedict, surprisingly, there's very little about spirituality as the modern world understands it. He doesn't tell you how to pray, not once, in 73 chapters. He says you must pray, and you must pray together. He says he devotes 12 chapters to which psalms you use and how you pray them all together, and what happens if a monk comes in late, or doesn't come at all, 
or needs to go out during the service or something like that. Practical things like that. But the basic thing is you must come and pray the Psalms and the Scripture together. And that is the main thing he says about the spiritual life. But then he goes on and says, but then you must also think about how you treat each other, how you address each other, what happens when a person does something wrong, what are you going to do about it? And it's all kind of tied up together. Can I give it a good example here of, of what Benedict says? In one of his chapters, actually the one on the, the seller, the seller is the person who has to give out the food, give out some money if you need it, meet all your sort of practical needs. And so he has a pretty difficult job because monks are human beings and they're always trying to get more than they really should have. And he's got to say no, but Benedict says, but do say no in a nice kind of way. Don't offend the person. Make sure that people are not made unhappy in the house of God. Now that sounds quite a low-key kind of thing that we should spend our lives making sure that people are not unhappy in this house. But the thing is, if you think about that, it's really sensible. Because if he had said, make sure that everyone's always happy, well, that would have been impossible. You'd be rushed around slapping each other on the back, saying, come on, smile, you know, smile, be happy. And that just makes people angry. Whereas if you said, okay, Judith is looking a bit miserable, perhaps have you to go and find out why she's looking miserable, and maybe it's something I can help with. And so I'm actually showing real concern for Judith. I'm not making her happy, but I'm just maybe helping to take away some of the cause of unhappiness. And that is something we can all do. And then we become more and more aware of each other. So that through this little thing about making sure that people are not unhappy, we're actually doing more for the happiness of the community. It's realistic. It's not highfalutin. It's what we can Anyone can do it. Coming back to the word spirituality, in the modern misunderstanding of spirituality, they think it's something about me, that I should feel good, I should feel more spiritual, I should feel more that the Holy Spirit is inside me. But actually, spirituality is about worrying about other people, not about me. Spirituality is showing concern for another person. That's what love is. And actually, when I do that, I will find I feel better because I'm actually concerned about another person, not about myself. So spirituality, Christian spirituality, goes in the opposite direction from everything that our modern society teaches us. But also, we're living in a culture that says, I'm failing somehow if I'm not busy. Yes. Example, I think people might like to hear is about Desmond Tutu, who was my bishop in Johannesburg. And this was in the 80s when he was the only black leader who wasn't in prison. So he was having to meet a huge number of demands uh, from all sides of the community and was the centre of a huge amount of conflict. Desmond was a very delightful and sensible person. And one of his rules was that at one o'clock every day he lay down and had half an hour's sleep. And so in his office, in his bishop's office, he had a sleeping bag. And at one o'clock he would climb into a sleeping bag and lie down on the floor and have half an hour's sleep. Nothing prevented that. Anyone who came to see him had to wait until the bishop had had his half an hour's sleep and then he got on with life. Those simple little things are life-saving. So if anybody like me is yes. listening to you and saying, I want to do this, I want to reshape mm. my life mm. by the rule of St. Benedict, what would you suggest would be a good practical way of going about it? Only try and take one thing at a time. 
one thing might be to say that I'm going to stop at midday for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, have a cup of coffee, sit outside, maybe say a little prayer, maybe read a passage of scripture. It only needs to be about 50 minutes, cup of coffee, look at the beautiful Manx scenery, and then get on with things. Just do that one thing. Once that's in place, you will probably find life has already improved. And then you might think of another little thing, just like it, that you might want to make a practice of stopping in at a church, which you know is open during the day, just for five minutes on your way home from work. And don't expect great revelations or anything, but you just find that that five minutes each evening on the way home becomes terribly important to you. And if you find two or three little things like that and just get them really built into the lives, just as you would cleaning your teeth in the morning or something like that, that is beginning to get that process of Benedictine spirituality into your life. If you'd like to know more about the rule of St. Benedict, then Making Space for God, the new book which Father Nicholas Stebbing has co-written with Roman Catholic nun Sister Philippa Edwards, is another title available from Church's Bookshop in Howard Street here in Douglas. And now, a challenge. A church in Darwin in Lancashire thinks that they have the longest attending church member in the country and they're asking if anyone else has been part of the same church family for longer than 99-year-old Mrs Edna Emery. Edna has attended St Peter's Church in Darwin her whole life, very nearly a 100 years. She was baptised and married at the church and still attends worship and other events there when she can. Edna, her late husband Tommy and their son Michael have served and supported the church over many decades. Now I know that here on the island there are a number of people who have long associations with their church. Have we got anyone who can equal Edna's record? Maybe you can have a think and let me know. And that's all that we have time for today. The Praise Blog is where you'll find our full church notice board alongside details of everything that we've talked about on today's programme. Just go to manxradio.com, on the homepage click on air and on the drop-down menu follow the link for blogs. Thank you for listening to this week's Praise Podcast. There's a new Praise Podcast available every Sunday morning. You can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify via the Manx Radio smartphone app or at manxradio.com. So, till we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for your company and I wish you and those you love every blessing in the days ahead. <laughs>